Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This is episode 24. And for this episode, we are going to be continuing the discussion about captives on the home front. Last time we talked about conscientious objectors. This time we're going to be talking about the Japanese and Japanese American prisoners and prisoners of war. To start off with, we're going to be talking about the Japanese and the Japanese Americans who were imprisoned in quote-unquote relocation camps or what is better known as internment camps or imprisonment camps. There are several names for them. History.com actually has an excellent overview of the relocation of the Japanese during World War II. So I encourage you, if, if you're a little rusty on your history about the period in our country's history, um, I encourage you to go to that site. Um, I'll have the link on my blog in my resources section. But they talk about how the United States Army oversaw the removal of the Japanese and Japanese Americans from the Pacific Coast starting March 24th, 1942. The people only had six days to, quote unquote, dispose of their belongings other than what they could carry. The people who were evacuated were those who were at least one sixteenth Japanese. Now, I wanted to give a little bit of background into the Japanese-American farmer's plight. And I, I mean, the whole story is very tragic. And But I wanted to focus on the farmers in particular because, you know, we're talking, we're, you know, we're focusing on rationing and agriculture. And while I was doing research, I was reading in this book by Martin W. Sandler called Imprisoned. The Betrayal of Japanese Americans During World War II. And I learned some very interesting things about the heritage of farming in America that the Japanese brought when they immigrated here. And he talks about how uh, they brought their advanced farming techniques from Japan to California, how they introduced things that Americans had never seen before, like celery, and that they even planted the first orchards in California in a place where, you know, people had pretty much written off as barren wastelands of desert. And so these were the first orchards that were planted in California. And now we look to California as this bower of, you know, citrus orchards and nut orchards. You know, that's, you know, what we, it kind of is synonymous um, with, with California. And even in the 40s, California was looked to for a huge producer of citrus. So when we think about these Japanese Americans being forced to sell their land and assets at a fraction of the cost with only six days notice was for some farmers too hard of a pill to swallow. And in his book... Mr. Sandler relates the words of Ernest Ayama, who couldn't forget how much 
the Japanese American farmers suffered. He said, quote, most farmers borrow money at the beginning. They buy seed and they have to hire people. Then when they get the crop, they sell it and then they pay off all their debts. These farmers, they planted their things, but they were evacuated before the crops came out. So they had to leave it. And some of them were so mad. I know some lettuce farmers poured kerosene on the lettuce and just burnt them because they were so mad that they didn't want to leave it for anybody. Close quote. I mean, I can understand their fury. There's so their frustration, you know, that investment that they put in and then being asked to just abandon it without any choice in the matter. And not just that, but they are being forced to walk away from a heritage of farming that they had built. And for many of them, for generations. Mr. Sandler uh, also quotes Jack Digimoto, who remembers how his father bought a tractor for $750 a few months before they were evacuated. His father was thrilled to finally have a tractor after a lifetime of farming with nothing but a horse and a plow. This tractor was a symbol of his success. When the notice of removal came, his father's prized tractor was sold for a measly $75. And this was just a very tiny sampling of the hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who had to find what to do with their things, selling their things at a ridiculously small price. Or sometimes they would leave their property in the hands of their neighbors, hoping that they could be trusted, only to come back later to find out many times that they were not. And it's just so heartbreaking that they were forced to go through this experience. So once they were evacuated, they were sent to war relocation centers. And I find this name very um, convenient. <laughs> but really, what they really were were prisons. So once they were sent to these imprisonment camps, they were able to work once given clearance by the government. In an article on archive.gov, they say that 26,000 Americans of Japanese descent were used in seasonal jobs on a furlough basis from their relocation centers during 1942, 1943, and 1944. And in the captions of several photographs that I found on the National Archives website, they read that farmers and other evacuees of Japanese descent will be given opportunities to follow their callings at war relocation authority centers where they will spend the duration. I find these photo captions carefully worded and kind of grating. The fact that the U.S. government by executive order removed so many Japanese farmers and laborers from their farms on the West Coast actually created a huge problem, especially in California, which was a huge producer of fruits, vegetables, and nuts for the U.S. at the time. As a result, they created their own labor shortage where there didn't need to be one due to this fear and prejudice. Now, the government 
feebly tried to fill the gap with, you know, high school students and later uh, Mexican laborers. In a newspaper article from the Palladium Item from Richmond, Indiana, dated April 29th, 1943, the headline reads, American Japanese farm experts may lessen shortage. It says, Elmer L. Sherrill, director of the War Relocation Authority, declared Wednesday that 40% of the 106,000 American Japanese and loyal Japanese aliens in the 10 relocation camps in the West and Southwest are expert agricultural workers who can help lessen the Middle West's labor shortage. Hiring of American Japanese farm help will lighten the burden of the taxpayer, Sherrill said in an address to the Chicago Farmers Association. At present, Americans are paying about a million dollars a week to maintain 10 camps. He said to stop this tax load by turning the labor ability of the American Japanese into productive channels, the War Relocation Authority needs the help of every farm owner or employer who has a job available. The people are adequately adapted to Midwest farming. They have a wide background of field crops, livestock, particularly hogs and poultry, and their skill in truck farming is nationwide. Many are graduates from Western agricultural colleges. Now, I'll be honest. When I read this article, I was burning up inside. <laughs> it kind of made me mad. <laughs> um, you know, he's talking about these people as, you know, movable assets. Um, here they are. These people are just sitting in these camps. You know, why can't we just use their labor on these farms over here in the Midwest, you know, where we need them so desperately? And uh, and yet he fails to mention that those very same Japanese Americans were taxpayers, too, and that the American government had created this problem. And now they're complaining about the price tag of keeping these people in terrible conditions. So um, let's put them to work in fields to get our money's worth. So, <laughs> yeah, I one thing I realized as I was doing this research and putting this episode together was that, I mean, I knew this was going to be a difficult topic going in. And I think that's maybe why I had procrastinated a little bit, just because it kind of soured my stomach a little, just going through all of this and seeing these attitudes and just knowing what these people went through. It's hard. It's hard knowing, knowing these things. Um, and that's why I'm telling their story. And I'm telling the story from the agricultural perspective. I don't, and, and that's one thing it, that I felt was important because I don't feel like we hear this side. Um, we do hear a lot about the camps themselves and about their lives there, but we don't really hear about, you know, their work in the fields or the work that they did in, um, on other people's farms. So um, you know, finding details of their work on farms is limited to what I could find in newspapers. And most of the other research I found mostly focuses, like I said, on the imprisonment camps. But I imagine that the work that they did engage in was similar to other emergency farm laborers, you know, work in fields, orchards, and with livestock. And what I did find in the newspapers was that even being sent to work on other farms in the United States met with resistance. One Delaware newspaper article reported a protest over bringing Japanese-American laborers in to help on the local farms. 
This comes from the News Journal out of um, Wilmington, Delaware, dated 11th of March, 1944. It reads, The protest meeting against Japanese-American farm labor in Sussex County is being held this afternoon in Grange Hall, Georgetown. Led by Roland D.J. Marsh, the opposition group is protesting against the proposed plan of Charles Mills, Lou's farmer, to bring 50 Japanese-Americans here to help relieve farm labor shortage. A storm of protest arose about 10 days ago when Mr. Mills brought two Japanese here from a war relocation authority camp in Arizona. The two men, Thomas Matsubara and William Honda, left the Mills farm yesterday. They said they did not want to stay in Lower Delaware if the people there did not want them. Well, I say good for them for leaving. (laughs) I don't blame them. Um, You know, if they were going to meet with such hostility... You know, I wouldn't want to stick around either, but that's such a shame. You know, a farmer was trying to solve a problem and uh, the other farmers in the area didn't want to have any part in it and uh, couldn't see past their prejudice. And maybe it was a little bit more than that. I mean, it's, you know, they couldn't see beyond, you know, these people maybe look like our country's enemy, but they... You know, they couldn't see that these were just men who were Americans, who were farmers, and were not the enemy. They, however, they, that was not the reception everywhere. Um, They received a far different reception in Michigan. The Times-Herald from Port Huron, Michigan, uh, dated the 14th of April, 1943, talks about how they, in Michigan, they were inviting the Japanese Americans to come and work by the hundreds. It says, a group of Michigan fruit and vegetable growers came here Tuesday, and I think it's talking about in Arkansas, came here Tuesday to ask Japanese Americans at relocation centers to take jobs in Michigan. The invitation was directed to 1,100 Japanese Americans with agricultural backgrounds who are in the Jerome and Rower relocation centers. About 12 men are needed immediately for year-round work, and about 100 will be needed for seasonal work later this year. 15 Japanese-American nursery workers from Jerome were sent to Monroe, Michigan last week, the first to go to Michigan under the federal program for releasing Japanese-Americans for help on the farms. So, you know, in some areas of the country, their labor was sorely needed and wanted. But from what I found, none of these places were out west. They were all in the Midwest or the East. They were not, as far as I found, allowed to work in the West. Um, That might have changed as the war went on and they were released, I believe, before the war was over. But um, at least early in the war, uh, most of these farm jobs were available in the Midwest and the East. There was another incident uh, that was talked about um, involving Japanese-American gardeners that was recounted in an Illinois newspaper dated May 11, 1943, uh, from Marengo, Illinois. It says, The air of hostility having been dissipated, 13 Japanese-American gardeners who had been quartered in Rockford since objections to their employment on McHenry County farms were raised more than a week ago, were to report for work near here today. They will be employed on farms of the Curtis Candy Company west of here. 
Elmar Sherl, regional director of the War Relocation Authority in Chicago, described the Marengo incident as a test case, which has proved Illinois farmers are willing to hire Americans of Japanese descent. The Marengo decision restored my belief that the Middle West still is the cradle of democracy in this country, said Sherl. I am glad in a way that the Marengo incident happened. It has strengthened WRA's position and has enabled a Midwest town to go on record that American citizens, regardless of race or creed, must not be deprived of their rights. Sherl said it is WRA's policy to supply farm help only in labor shortage areas. WRA does not send American Japanese to districts where labor is sufficient. American Japanese will not cut wage rates, but must receive the prevailing wage scale wherever they work. These boys are American citizens. They are willing, intelligent, and many of them are university graduates. They are entitled to every civil right you and I receive, said Sherrill. They were born in this country, are thoroughly American, and have no ties with Japan. Most of them can't even speak the language. Of the 106,000 American Japanese and loyal Japanese aliens, now in 10 relocation camps in the West and Southwest, 40% are expert agricultural workers who expect to be farmers all their lives. And then he goes, the, the article goes on to say that, you know, all of these counties surrounding Chicago are experiencing a labor shortage and that American Japanese help would solve that problem. Pointing out that the raising of food is one of the most important duties on the home front. Now, this article I found very encouraging as far as attitudes go. I like that he points out that these boys are American citizens and that they are entitled to every civil right you and I receive. And that as American citizens, regardless of race or creed, they must not be deprived of their rights. It doesn't take away the fact that they were put into imprisonment camps, but I appreciate his words in this article. And I just want to point out that, yes, there were many people who were racist and prejudiced in that time, but there were also many people who did not believe those things, and they did speak up. And I I feel like a lot of times we don't hear those voices from this time period in World War II, Um, but you really, when you read the newspapers, you do see those in, you know, when they write into the newspapers Um, I have found some very interesting voices. So it's encouraging. It really is to to read them and to know that there were people that did not feel the same way as the prevailing attitudes of the time. Okay, well, now we're going to switch to talking about POWs in the United States. From World War II, about 425,000 prisoners of war were held in the United States. Most of these were German, but also about 51,000 Italians were held here. They were scattered across the U.S. in more than 500 camps between 1943 and 1946. Eventually, every state had at least one or more POW camps, except for Nevada, North Dakota, and Vermont. So if you're curious about your state's POW camps, you should check with your local historical society because they probably have some information about it. I know that my own state in Maryland had quite a few, and it's been interesting reading up uh, about them in some articles online. Now, I was curious if there were any Japanese prisoners of war held in camps in the U.S. 
There were some held in Virginia, California, and Wisconsin. There might have been a few other places, but most of them were held in New Zealand and Australia, and the U.S. helped support the POWs through Lend-Lease to these countries. And from what I've read so far, I wasn't able to dig very deep, but many of the Japanese prisoners of war in the United States were held and used for um, intelligence gatherings. So it's a very, (laughs) their story is very complicated. um, And that is a different story altogether. So we won't be uh, talking about them in this episode. But if you're interested, definitely do some research on your own. But um, we're going to be focusing mostly on um, German POWs and, and Italian POWs. Now, when I started my research about POWs in the United States, I had a huge amount of research to choose from because, you know, so many of states had POW camps. Quite a few people have written about it. And so it was really the choice of like, you know, who do I pick (laughs) to study? (laughs) And so what I decided was to pick Michigan as the state of choice and, um, Uh, to study POWs. And I did this because of the really unique and diverse agriculture that it has. The book that I chose is called Michigan POW Camps in World War II, written by Gregory D. Sumner. Now, what I learned is that there was a very interesting uh, dynamic that went on in POW camps with the Germans. Because what you had were the diehard Nazis and SS mixed with regular German citizens who were not totally sold on the Nazi propaganda. The United States military did try to separate them into different camps when they could. Um, The Nazis and SS being locked into more secure prisons because they really could start trouble. But for the rest of the guys, for many who'd been living with Hitler's propaganda factory, seeing America prospering despite all the war they'd already been through was a huge blow to their morale. Um, They'd been told that America was suffering, and yet, you know, when they were traveling through the U.S. to their camp, the prisoner of war camp, they saw a completely opposite story. Um, On the other hand, to be treated like a human being, to be out of the war, made many weep with relief. Um, In his book, Gregory Sumner talks about this experience. He says, Each POW was issued his own kit containing a towel, soap, toothpaste, and a toothbrush. We felt that we were in paradise, Conrad Creighton remembered, and had become again humans. Never mind the heavy iron bars outside the windows. Uh, Now, when it comes to their treatment... The U.S. followed the Geneva Convention laws, so POWs weren't forced to work. Their work was voluntary. They worked in many types of jobs to keep the monotony at bay. In his book, Gregory Sumner describes the work done by POWs in the state of Michigan. He says, POWs worked in dairy operations near Lansing and on sugar beet and navy bean farms in the Thumb and celery fields near Kalamazoo. 
They weeded, watered, and pulled onions and carrots at Camp Waterloo near Jackson. They painted barns and tended to wheat, corn, mint, tomatoes on the southern border with Ohio. They packed and loaded produce onto refrigeration trucks for the House of David sect in Benton Harbor and cut down trees in the densely wooded wilderness of the Upper Peninsula. They climbed ladders in orchards and vineyards all along Lake Michigan from Oceana, Macosta, and Nuego counties down to the Indiana line. They mowed and baled hay, provided manpower for seed and fertilizer plants, and kept the lines moving at Heinz, Welch's, and other food processing and canning concerns like Gerber's Baby Food Plant and Michigan Sugar Company's Cairo Plant. Around the clock at harvesting time. So... And this was one reason why I chose Michigan, just because of the very interesting, diverse agriculture that they had going on there. Um, And also because of the very interesting food processing plants that they had. One example is in the town of Fremont, Michigan. It's northwest of Grand Rapids. And it is home to Gerber, the baby food company. It was founded in 1927 by German immigrants and it's considered the baby food capital of the world at least it was then maybe it still is now (laughs) um and in his book Gregory Sumner talks about how residents were long accustomed to the scent of mashed prunes pureed squash and steamed spinach that saturated the air for miles around (laughs) um but what's interesting about this is that uh, the Gerber plant you know they needed they were desperate for workers And in March of 1944, they were really pushing hard to get the POWs to their plant. And so working with the War Manpower Commission and the union for Gerber employees, they also signed on to the idea. They got prisoners of war to come to their plant and they camped in tents on the property. And so... He says in his book, row after row of neatly aligned tents first met the eye as one approached the camp behind Gerber's plant. And this was reported for the Fremont Tribune. The spacing was designed to allow for clear sight lines from the guard towers. At the end of the month, 274 prisoners were on the grounds. And with the onset of the harvest in late summer, the number swelled to more than 500. The POWs more than fulfilled their mission, saving the day for the baby food company. Merchants in town and farmers scattered throughout Nuevo County. So uh, they really saved the day for the baby food company, but also for babies who needed that food. <laughs> An interesting dynamic to the story, though, is that um, there weren't they weren't their only company competing for these POW workers. There was also Cairo Company and and other food processing plants. So really fascinating aspect to this story of these POWs acting as, you know, pinch hitters in uh, helping with the labor shortage. And just like anywhere else in their country, their labor was badly needed. I came across numerous newspaper articles talking about how POWs were to be used on local farms, most of them German POWs. These articles were from late in the war too, 1945 some even after VE Day. The need for crops still remained as high as ever. The articles I found came from Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Florida, Texas, Kentucky, and Nebraska. The need was everywhere. 
And I know I missed some. I mean, <laughs> that was just a few of the articles I found. One article gave some good details. Its headline read, 41 POW camps help farm in three states. And this was from the Daily Tribune in Wisconsin. It was dated 13th of July, 1945. It stated, out of Fort Sheridan, Illinois, 41 prisoner of war branch camps have been established in Illinois, Wisconsin, and the upper Michigan Peninsula to meet the agricultural labor shortage. 31 camps are located in Wisconsin to harvest the pea, cherry, and cranberry crops, and later will be used in harvesting the sugar beet and corn crops. Five camps are in Illinois, and five are operating in Michigan. All are under supervision of Fort Sheridan. Value of prisoner of war work during the first half of 1945 was estimated at $2,530,000 by Brigadier General John T. Pierce, Fort Sheridan commanding officer. I really like this article. Besides mentioning three interesting crops, especially cranberry crops. I forgot they grew those there. Um, oh, and then also sugar beet and corn. But they talk about the value of the prisoner of war work. $2.5 million worth of work that these prisoners of war are doing. And that's just in these three states. That's not talking about the rest of the country. Now, there were mixed feelings about the treatment of prisoners of war, especially considering the harsh treatment of American POWs overseas. As we know, or as you may not know, other countries who held prisoners of war did not necessarily follow the Geneva Convention rules. American prisoners of war were treated very harshly um, and did not always get the best treatment. And in many times were tortured, killed, starved, um, and so, uh, in comparison, these German and Italian prisoners of war were treated very, very well. They had enough to eat. They had medical staff at these forts, and they really didn't lack for much. They were just in prison, and they had jobs to do, and they weren't really in too much danger. So, um, the comparison was hard for many people to kind of swallow, especially if their own brothers or sons were a prisoner of war captured overseas in Germany or Japan. Another aspect that some people had a very hard time with was the difference between the treatment of POWs and the African-American servicemen. This is a part of the prisoner of war story that I thought was extremely important to bring up just because I don't think it's a part of the story that we ever hear about. Mr. Sumner talks about this in his book. He brings up the story, um, the experience of Lloyd Brown, an enlisted man um, turned away from a whites-only diner in Salinas, Kansas with a group of fellow black troops stationed at the local army base. And he goes on to relate the story. It says, you boys know we don't serve colored here, the owner told them as they walked in, with a nervous smile the first time, more firmly the second. We ignored him, Brown said, in an open letter he wrote to a newspaper about the incident, and just stood there inside the door staring at what we had come to see. The German prisoners of war who were having lunch at the counter— 
The rumors were true, after all, Brown remembered. There were about ten of them. They were dressed in fatigues and wore the distinctive high-peaked caps of Rommel's Africa Corps. It was something we had to see with our own eyes. The Germans now had half-turned on their stools and were staring back at us. Each man's cap had precisely the same cocky angle. Nothing further was said, and when the owner edged toward the phone on the wall, we knew it was time to go. This is another one of those stories that when I read, it just made me sick to my stomach. Just the level of hypocrisy and injustice that this man had to face. You know, and I I can't even imagine what was going through those men's minds, but just how gutting that is to, you know, have already gone through so much to be an African-American enlisted man, um, gone through so much prejudice already, and then to be excluded from a diner in his own country and yet look in the door and see his own enemy being served. I I don't know if words can even describe that. As I was preparing this episode, I've had a chance to kind of think about my feelings about these topics because they are, you know, difficult to think about. And as a historian, I, I try to look at the facts and I usually try to, when I think about these people that lived in this time period, I try to think about them in within the time period that they lived. Thinking about them from my time period is kind of inaccurate um, because they didn't live in my time. And, you know, trying to examine them from, you know, my perspective I, I don't think I could ever really fully understand them. I have to understand them from, you know, where they were at within their frame of politics, what was going on in the world at the time, you know, their lives and their belief systems. And when we can see them from where they were at, we can maybe understand their choices and decisions. Not that that makes them correct, but we can at least see where they were coming from. But at the same time, I am definitely a human being. And um, and as we analyze and think about this these topics in our day, it's it is important to to recognize things that were not right, things and attitudes that were harmful and incorrect. And as we look at these people who had these prisoners of war come to their towns, it's very interesting to see how they coped with that. They were kind of a two, well, not necessarily two ends of a spectrum. They're probably all over the place, but you definitely see kind of two prevailing attitudes you know, on one side, there were the people who had a real problem with the prisoners of war even being there, that they were being mollycoddled uh, compared to American prisoners of war overseas. Then there were the people who got to know these prisoners of war, had real relationships with them, and they got to see them as people, as young men, as boys that were just caught up in this war machine. And... In many cases, these 
German and Italian prisoners of war had family in America. They had relatives in neighboring states. And many of the Americans, you know, were of German and Italian descent. So, you know, these were kind of just like boys from the home country. And in some cases, they even still spoke German or Italian. So there was a lot of common ground to build with these young men. And they were farmers in many cases. So there was that as well. So it's just while they were the enemy because we were at war, a lot of people were able to see beyond that. And so this is just a really interesting social history topic to study, um, to see, you know, how people related to these young men, how they dealt with them in their towns for good or bad. Now we need to get down to the nitty gritty of kind of the details of the prisoners of war, you know, their life here. Were the prisoners of war paid for the work that they did? Yes, they were. The Geneva Convention stipulated that if they were contracted out to individuals and businesses, they were compensated at the level of a private in the army. Mr. Sumner explains it this way in his book. Employers, often with the help of loans from local banks, paid the U.S. Treasury the prevailing wage for services rendered, and out of that, prisoners received up to 80 cents a day beyond a 10-cent basic allowance in the form of coupons or scrip redeemable at the camp canteen. So they were paid, but not necessarily in money. So scrip, it was just kind of, um, you know, these coupons or credits that they could redeem at the camp canteen or store where they could, you know, purchase things. A newspaper article from the Minneapolis Star dated September 9th, 1943, talks about the state's Italian PWs, which I think they mean POWs, celebrate at work. And I think I mentioned before, most of these articles talk about German prisoners of war, but I was really happy to find this one about Italian prisoners of war. And this particular one gives a lot of great details about their work on the farm. It says, Italy may have fallen, but to 100 Italian prisoners of war who were at work digging potatoes and onions at the O.J. Odegaard farms, it was just another day of work. They are one of two groups of Italians who are now working on Minnesota farms, the other group having been located at Olivia. Their home here is a wired enclosure with armed guards standing on each corner, 40 guards to 100 prisoners. But the men show little concern over the guns and guards and pass their time easily with singing, drawing, and wood carving. They work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in the fields, and when their workday is done, they hustle back to their camp to play baseball or engage in other games or diversion. Each is paid 80 cents a day for his work according to international rules governing prisoners of war, but they get scrip for only half that amount now to spend. The camp has its own canteen from which the men are permitted to buy two bottles of beer a day and their cigarettes. They have a big job ahead of them because Odegaard has 2,200 acres of truck crops on his farms. But the prisoners have come to like Odegaard and he to like them. One of the reasons they like Odegaard is because he has been doing small favors for them, supplying them with free packets of cigarettes upon occasion. Told that Italy had surrendered, they responded with mixed emotions at first. 
Some of these men were veterans of eight years serving in the Italian army. Some hung their heads. Others responded that now we should work harder to grow more food here in the United States to help feed Italy. Interpreters and guards tried to reassure them that unconditional surrender was the best thing that could have happened to Italy, but some were hard to convince. They feared reprisals from Germany on their families in Italy now would result. The men have been on the Autogard farm since Sunday night. Autogard said he was concerned about the weather, assuming the Italians were accustomed to warmer climates. He mentioned the fact to the leader of the group, saying he thought perhaps it was too cold for the men to work in the fields that day. The group leader spoke to one of his men and then told Odegaard the men were not concerned about the cold, that they had known cold weather in their homeland too, but that they felt sorry for the guards who were standing idly by, bundled in overcoats, while the prisoners kept warm by working. I just think this is a really great snapshot of their work on the farm and and maybe a little bit of life in their prison camp. But one thing really stood out to me in this article that I felt was important to point out. And it was the prisoner that said, now we should work harder to grow more food here in the United States to help feed Italy. And that's exactly what they were doing. And it was very good insight on his part to understand that. Some prisoners of war might have looked at it as a way to stave off boredom, but by helping American farmers with their crops, they were, yes, helping the enemy feed their soldiers, but their work was going toward helping to feed their families and the starving people in Europe, especially at the end of the war. The United States had the ability to produce a humongous amount of food. The problem was just labor and getting enough of it, and the POWs played a part in helping fill that need. Today's cookbook feature is Wartime Cooking Guide by Gertrude Volmig. And the subtitle of this book is actually Stretching the Points. <laughs> this is an actual book. It's not a booklet like many of the ones I have. This was published in 1943. And it has many chapters, aids for ration planners, meals for after work shoppers, um, quick breads, lunchbox meals, vegetable cookery, salvaging leftover meats, uh, sugar saving recipes. They've got lots of really handy chapters. The foreword is interesting. It says, the war has presented Mrs. American Homemaker with many problems. Much of the food we once purchased freely is now rationed. Many foods are scarce. These must be extended or menus planned without them. Available supplies must take the place of familiar peacetime items, which have become hazards of war. We must buy, store, and cook to conserve food value as well as food and flavor. It is a big job and a challenge to us. This wartime cooking guide has been planned to simplify the problems and help with the job. It is not an ordinary cookbook with an attempt to cover the entire field of cookery. Rather, it is a guide to the care, preparation, and cookery of those foods which will be most plentiful during wartime. The recipes are simple and basic, with suggestions for changes which will help keep meals planned with restricted supplies from becoming dull. Today, the housewife's time is precious. This book will help save time. The answers to bothersome questions and the recipes are easy to locate, understand, and follow. Special hints for the working woman are included. American housewives have taken over the responsibility of feeding some 35 million families healthful and attractive meals with our share of the food supply. We are eager to win our part in the war, and by attacking our problems intelligently, we will. 
I really like this forward. And it really pinpoints all the problems that women were dealing with. And this cookbook, as I was flipping through it, it's very true. Most of these recipes are very basic, very simple, and very standard wartime recipes. Nothing super fancy. And there wasn't anything that really stood out to me as, wow, that's really strange or weird, except they do have the variety meats chapter. I skipped right over that one. (laughs) I wasn't feeling very adventurous uh, this time around. But the one thing I did want to try was in the sugar saving recipes section for raspberry turnovers. And for this episode, I was just going to try one recipe because... Our story highlight is a little bit longer, and I'll explain in a little bit why. But the raspberry turnovers recipe sounded very refreshing and exciting in the depths of winter. So, and it includes one recipe of baking powder biscuit dough. So already, I mean, it's pretty simple. So you just make your favorite baking powder biscuit dough. Then you need two tablespoon melted butter or a substitute, so like margarine or shortening, then one and a half cups fresh raspberries, two tablespoons sugar, honey, or other sweet, approximately, one tablespoon flour, and then optional is one tablespoon lemon juice. My raspberries were not very sweet, so I did not use lemon juice, and it's a good thing because they would have been way too tart. So the instructions say to roll the dough a fourth of an inch thick and cut into three inch squares. Then you brush them with melted fat, And then you mix the raspberries, sweetening, flour, and lemon juice if you decide to add that. Then you place a spoonful on each square, fold the dough over to form a triangle, seal the edges, and place on a greased baking sheet. You bake in a hot oven of 400 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 to 25 minutes. I thought like more like 18 to 20 was better and makes six turnovers. Oh, it only makes six. (laughs) I feel like mine made a lot more. And then it mentions that you can make apple, peach, and other fruit turnovers like blueberries. You can use fresh or canned to take the place of raspberries. And then when canned fruits are used, the syrup may be drained off to make into a sauce for a topping. So that's nice. So I did maybe something I shouldn't have done. I am not, I did not follow the directions. Oops. I, I mashed my raspberries because I was like, oh, yes, this makes sense because the three inch squares are not very big and my raspberries were huge. So I don't know if it's because raspberries these days are just bigger. I just could not envision them fitting into these three inch squares. So and then the quarter inch thick just felt like too thick. So what I actually ended up doing was rolling my dough a lot thinner. So they were more like six inches, six inch squares. And then I had this runny filling. (laughs) And then when they baked, most of the filling of, of the turnovers ran out. So only two of them did not run out. Uh, they felt like a failure, but they did taste very good. So the filling does thicken. So it wasn't a complete disaster. They just ran out. And I do want to try it again and this time not mash the raspberries. (laughs) Shame on me. But, um, and of course, you know, try other fruits. Yeah, because why not? I'm not very experienced making turnovers, but I would definitely make them again. They're very delicious and perfect for breakfast. The one thing I would say is that these are not very sweet. 
So they're, my kids liked them that way though. I actually took some leftover buttercream frosting that I had and spread a thin layer on top and it made them taste kind of like a raspberry Danish a little bit. <laughs> so if you want to go that route, there's always that. But for a wartime sugar saving recipe, this is a really great example and they're very tasty. So I highly recommend these. They're a little bit of work um, just because of all the cutting and folding and filling and all that jazz. So, uh, but I think it's worth it. So I'll have this recipe on my blog for you to enjoy. For this episode's story highlight, we're doing something a little bit different. I was able to interview a fellow World War II reenactor, Roger Roop, about his grandfather, Ralph Roop, who had POWs working to help on his dairy farm during World War II. So my friend Laura and I sat down in his kitchen and we talked about the POWs on his grandfather's farm. During, during World War II, my, my grandfather ran the farm. And his name was Ralph Guyman Roop. And um, he had three sons and one daughter. Uh, Winifred Roop was his daughter. Um, the oldest son was Roland Roop. The middle son was my father, Roger Gary Roop. And the youngest was Daniel Roop. And all of them were involved in the farm operation. So the oldest son, Roland, was probably his number two man. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your grandfather ran the farm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the name of the dairy farm, was it? It was Carroll Farms Dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, the dates when it ran, I want to say it was, it was before the war because my father remembers going on a delivery truck and delivering during the war. That operation stopped in 1947, like after the war, when they started instituting more dairy controls uh, and it became more expensive to, to, to run dairy operations, mostly because of pasteurization. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yep. And they delivered to uh, a milk processing? After that, they did. Okay. Um, before that, they bottled their own milk. They had their own bottles. And uh, they had half-gallon, pint, and quart bottles. They also made their own ice cream on a very limited scale. I wish I'd known that. Um, they did an, an orange cream, like milk cream drink. And they did chocolate milk, too. And oh, yeah. if you've ever seen Roops, they drink chocolate milk like there's no tomorrow. Um, <laughs> it's in the blood. Yeah, it's in the And ice cream, too. I mean, and it's not just Roops. I mean, I, everybody loves ice cream. But, but wow, I saw, my, I saw my cousin polish off an entire half gallon like that. Um, but my father was a middle son. And, um, and he and his, his brother would uh, either, I think later, later in the war, my dad could actually drive. So he would actually drive the milk truck. They had an old, um, before the war, they had a, a Willie's Whippet truck. But my father said, I never drove that. I drove an international, a panel van. So they would distribute milk to Westminster, New Windsor, Union Bridge, and I believe, and I could be wrong, Uniontown. And possibly Tommytown. So to grocery stores or to like, individual families? To individual families. Oh, okay. Yeah. They would get up every morning, early in the morning. They'd do all their farm duties. like, uh, And milking cows was a major farm duty, plus feeding them and, and mucking out stalls and things like that. And they would do all this, and then after they were done, then they'd have breakfast. And then they had to get ready for school. 
but sometimes they, what they would end up doing is they share the duties and split them up because they also had a milk route and uh, they would go into Westminster. But very early on, my dad remembered riding with his father, my grandfather, and doing the milk route. So, yeah, I mean, my dad wasn't of age to go into, into the service during World War II, but my oldest uncle was. But because of the need of labor on the farm, he, he stayed on the farm. And, but that was a fully functional, this, this, this farm, um, the main bottling operation, and I had to kind of go back and when we talked about this before, uh, I had to go back and look at it. The main, uh, although they bottled things here, primarily this was a sterilization area because that, that, the way they set up, they had a water tank up top that was heated and then they would run that and clean the bottles and they would drop the bottles down that chute, mm-hmm. grab it, cap them, and, um, and then send them over to the actual dairy bottling plant, but during the war, uh, they delivered milk on an almost daily, almost daily basis. And certain people, I'm sure, would get it in one day, and certain people would get it in another, or go by towns like that. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how they ran their operation. So during the war, your grandfather heard about the POW camp nearby. Mm-hmm. Where where was that camp again? Was it pretty close? Dad and I, I've always tried to pin him down. Now, I have to tell you right now, my, my dad, um, like on this farm, I'll give you an example. On this farm, my dad is referred to dairy. That is the dairy building. That is the da- I mean, there's been five bar- buildings <laughs> that have been called the dairy building. <laughs> so is this actually where it was? I don't know. I think um, Laura had pointed out, like, wake- off of Wakefield Valley Road. Yeah, or, or is that right? In Wakefield. I think so. But it makes oh, sense. It's yeah. in that area. Um, and but well, the time he took me out there, and I said, "Where is it exactly?" And he took me down. Was it uh, Tahoma Road? I guess it is. There's a there's a housing development on the left hand side as you're driving into Westminster mm-hmm. from here, and it's it's right around here is where that 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 POW camp is. The one thing that was interesting that he told me was that there was a there was a refugee camp, Polish refugee camp from Eastern Europe oh, that was yeah. up the hill. And they would, every morning, they would dump all their garbage down into the POW camp. <laughs> and my dad thought, it, thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't think the Germans thought that was funny, but yeah. No. <laughs> and most of the Germans that were there were from uh, North Africa campaign yeah. and Italian campaign. And nothing yeah. came in from the ETO, not that I know of. Yeah, so. that's what I've been reading, a lot of the Africa campaign. Um, so he heard about the POWs that... Mm. Could come and work All right so he hired that he could go out and just yeah it wasn't so hire them it's it's a, a matter of they you the way i understood it is uh, first of all the per, he heard about it how he heard about it i don't know i i imagine it went through this neck of the woods like wildfire mm-hmm. that there's free labor up the up the the road uh the federal government i don't know if they necessarily had to do a lot of advertising they may have put a little notice in the paper saying oh you know if you need labor you know, come here. Uh, do you know Laura? I think it was through the Farm Bureau. Okay, that makes sense too. That makes a lot of sense. So it's probably through the Farm Bureau that, that they noticed it. Um, they did most everything here. Your insurance came from the Farm Bureau. Yeah, so loans could be done through the Farm Bureau as well. That was crucial during World War II because they would help you. That You had to keep to a certain production schedule. Mm-hmm. And, Especially... Uh, I don't know, dairy farms, that was the most crucial need, especially mm. in the spring yep. of 43. Mm. That's when a lot of the POWs were coming over. Yep. 
and so they got a lot of the labor from the. That's what I've been reading, like from no, the I, I, and stuff. I, I will say it didn't. It didn't happen in forty-one. Didn't probably happen in forty-two. It was forty-three, forty-four, yeah. more than likely. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because I think uh, they didn't have any. I don't think they were. My, my grandparents weren't afraid of the mm. of the prisoners. They they knew they were given assurances that you know that don't worry. Then I don't think they were ever under armed guard. Um, yeah. They 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 would go because my my uncle Rollin would go out and pick them up, and so he's the oldest son go out and pick them up, and he's the one that had the closest relationship with them because he had to sign them out, and so he probably knew them very well. And my my grandfather was too probably too busy. Just I don't have time to just give him something to do. Um, and we talked about this before, but what do they do? Um, well, the one that stands out is this guy. I think it's Heinz was his name, but I don't know his last name. And they called him Heine. And if you actually can remember their names, they probably were important to you. That's how I've always seen this in his throughout reading history. That if you, if there's somebody's named. You know, maybe hundreds of people who applied for a job, but one guy sticks out. They must have had something. So I remember my dad saying that he uh, he came from a farm in Schwabia in Germany and uh, Schwabia, and he knew how to take care of horses, and he could shoe them. And so he was in, completely in charge of the pertrons of our you know the farm. So we had about six I think six pertrons. So he was responsible for taking care of all the tack. And responsible for um, shooing them and in, in their health, and my dad, I'm sure, hung around them a bit because he knew exactly. Oh yeah, I remember Heine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice guy. Uh, but they were all young people. Young, my uncle was probably in his late teens, you know, 17, 18. He was of draft age, but my dad was like 13, 15, you know, and his brother was like eight, ten. Yeah, they they were fairly young, and here are these guys come in, and they they weren't much young, much older. It's like a bunch of big brother kind of guys. Yeah, yeah, bit. sorta. And they no, so my family didn't speak German. No. Um, and so the uh, dad said, "Yeah, we, we, well, we were able to figure each other out. You know, uh, we didn't ask too much. But the one thing is the the farm, uh, I guess, the farm farm bureau or the, the military required is that the family feed them one meal." Um, so it was, first of all, it helps the federal government. They don't have to feed them, feed them one meal. <laughs> Second thing is, um, they, they, they're taken care of one time and then they go back and they, they can get whatever rations they'll get from military. But, um, my, my grandmother thought that was unfair because they, these guys worked pretty darn hard on the farm. And so she gave them not just one meal, but two meals. And so, um, after a while it got to be a problem, my uncle would show up. Because it would be all, the news got out that they get two meals, and so there would be these lines of guys trying to get in to get signed up, and uh, and they're like, oh, we and you get ice cream too. Oh well, well. And it was like, there you go, man. Ice cream. I didn't know we had ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do you know if there was uh, how many guys would come out usually? Not that many, four or five maybe. Okay. And. Um, th- and I'm sure some farms probably had more, um, but, but probably four or five. It didn't sound like that was that many. And they usually worked on, like, the fences and... If you had no... I'm going to tell you, the, the way I look at it and the way it's been described to me, if you had no applicable skills that stood out, you're going to work the fence lines. Uh, and you're going to work um, what I call scut duty, which is just, you know, scuttle 
go out and clean this, clean that, feeding calves, taking care of calves, um, or taking care of cattle, running fence line and fixing fence line. Um, all that stuff is kind of mundane, but it's, it's, it's important work that has to be done. Uh, and then of course there, you know, a couple times a year where you've got planting season, you've got harvesting season and yeah, then there's, and the thing is this, this farm was, I believe they had one tractor during the war one and it was farm all tractors were expensive and they still are and um if you had a tractor most everybody in, in the 40s in this neck of the woods had horses and they ran draft or uh, we had moved on from oxen so they said so, <laughs> yeah. but they had, most of them had draft horses and this farm had about six of them and then they had a farm all and so uh and you think of it, it's not just this farm it's also the um, norris farm down the road which he owned and then the one that was Joel Israel Root Farm, which is off 27. Uh, so dairy was the main industry. And then, and then whatever you plan as far as crop-wise, will either support the dairy operation. And that's actually what it was really designed to, to support the, uh, the dairy operation. And then whatever excess you made, you sold. Uh, and then you had certain things that you did for human consumption. Uh, wheat, barley, things like that. Um, but... Yeah, <laughs> no, the work never stops. No, yeah, and and then you mentioned that the um, the POWs didn't work in the dairy. It's no, not that I know. I think it was. Yeah. I think first of all, there's not a lot of room to do that. Yeah. Now I say that, um, but it's quite possible they did. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, um, if you got extra labor, but you only had maybe four or five. So and there was other stuff that more manual labor that needed to be done, where it's like get your sons to do the stuff that is more specialized and get POWs who are just arms and legs to go and do all the the, the heavy stuff. But I'm sure from time to time, I can imagine that they, they would have been brought in. They may have been actually t- brought in to just do hand milking, milking too. Your grandfather had a mechanical yeah. milker? Yeah, he had a mechanical milker and his brother, my, my who I'm named after, Roger Rupp, uh, designed a portable milker that became he patent. It's a patented design. Right after the war, he got he was one of the founding members of the uh, Heifer Project. Uh, so he saw, and I think I think the Heifer Project was born out of knowing, getting to know somebody. And I'm sure he had POWs on this farm, but almost as certainly because they were, he was the same age or just either just younger just barely younger or just barely older than my grandfather. And uh, so I'm sure he had POWs there. And, and they, you know, these young guys are, are separated by 3,000 miles of ocean from their homes. And if they were, any of them were involved in farming, um, there's a connectivity there. I mean, you're doing the same stuff and you're like, you don't have to explain it three times. If a guy comes from Berlin, he probably doesn't know the thing about farming. But if he comes from... Uh, the you know down in uh, uh, like Tübingen and Ulm and, and the southern parts of Germany, which are big agriculture at that point, then yeah, I could see them easily making a connection there, and they stop becoming enemy almost immediately, and they become just another guy, a young kid that, working on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing. That's a lesson that we could all learn. It was really great to sit down with Roger and talk about his 
family's experience uh, of having POWs on the farm during World War II, I learned so much that I hadn't learned before, especially about just running a dairy farm during that time period. And I wanted to give a huge thank you to Roger for allowing me to interview him and for sharing his family's story with me and for Laura for tagging along and um, for sitting in on the interview with me and for adding her uh, expertise and knowledge about the local POWs and camps. Uh, I hope that these past couple episodes have been, you know, interesting in highlighting some untold stories of, you know, people who are held captive on the home front, but that they definitely contributed a very important part to saving our essential crops and contributed to our success in being able to feed our troops, our country, and our allies. Well, that's all I have for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. If you would like to support my podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash victory kitchen podcast where patrons receive three exclusive recipes from my cookbook collection every month. And there's a bunch of other cool perks that I have there. And if you'd like to join in the fun on Instagram, you can also go there. My handle is victory kitchen podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.